See, a king will reign in righteousness, and rulers will rule with justice. Each one will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Then the eyes of those who see will no longer be closed, and the ears of those who hear will listen. The fearful heart will no one understand, and the stammering tongue will be fluent and clear. No longer will the fool be called noble, nor the scoundrel be highly respected. For fools speak folly, their hearts are bent on evil, they practice ungodliness, and spread error concerning the Lord. The hungry they leave empty, and from the thirsty they withhold water. Scoundrels use wicked methods. They make up evil schemes to destroy the poor with lies, even when the plea of the needy is just. But the noble make noble plans, and by noble deeds they stand. You women who are complacent, rise up and listen to me. You daughters who feel secure, hear what I have to say. In little more than a year, you will feel secure. Sorry, you will feel secure, will tremble. The grape harvest will fail, and the harvest of fruit will not come. Tremble, you complacent women. Shudder, you daughters who feel secure. Strip off your fine clothes and wrap yourselves in rags. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields for the fruitful vines, and for the land of my people, a land overgrown with thorns and briars. Yes, mourn for all the houses of merriment and for the city of revelry. The fortress will be abandoned, the noisy city deserted, citadel and watchtower will become a wasteland forever. The delight of donkeys, a pasture for flocks, till the Spirit is poured out on us from on high, and the desert becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field seems like a forest. The Lord's justice will dwell in the desert, His righteousness live in the fertile field. The fruit of that righteousness will be peace, its effect will be quietness and confidence forever. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. The hail flattens the forest, and the city is leveled completely. How blessed you will be, sowing your seed by every stream, and letting your cattle and donkeys range free. Thanks, George. Good morning, everyone. My name's Cam Maxwell. I'm on the staff team here. Uh, and a big welcome to you all, especially if this is your first week with us in the series we've been doing for the last little while now in the book of Isaiah. Uh, it can be strange walking to a church and hearing a passage like that, not knowing what it's all about, what's going on. Um, as a kind of a way to get started, let me give us all a bit of a tip on how to often work out the main idea in a Bible passage. Uh, one clue to the main idea Uh, often comes from how often a word or a concept gets repeated in the passage. So as I uh, read through Isaiah 32, here's some words that sort of uh, stood out to me that I think get repeated. I'll sort of scan from top to bottom, you might like to look with me. 
Uh, Verse 2, we get words like shelter and refuge. Uh, Skipping down a bit to verse 9, you see the word secure, then secure, then secure. Uh, Verse 14, you see secure words like fortress, citadel, citadel, watchtower, and we see delighted donkeys as well. Uh, Down in verse 17, peace, confidence forever, secure homes, undisturbed rest, and of course, uh, my favourite part of this passage, free-range donkeys. Uh, So, I I gather this part of the Bible is either about security or or donkeys. Uh, I reckon uh, we'll save the donkeys thing for another time. Uh, That was tempting to spend some time there, though. I reckon spending some time thinking today about security will be very helpful as we look at Isaiah 32. Uh, As far as I can tell, there are two main parts to this idea of security. Uh, There is first... um, uh, Sorry, the first is how secure you actually are how secure you actually are, and then secondly, how secure you feel. Um, And those two things don't always match up, do they? How secure you are and how secure you feel, they don't always match up. Uh, My wife, Karina, she was born in South Africa, and uh, a few years ago we went uh, to visit and I got to meet her extended family. We had a great time. It's a beautiful country. Uh, And a big hello to uh, many South African friends we uh, have in this church this morning. Uh, What was noticeable uh, in suburban South Africa to an Aussie like me is just how seriously homeowners take security there. Every house has these massive, lethal-looking fences all around it. Um, I actually felt relatively safe until I saw that, and I realised how unsafe everyone else feels, and it makes me then feel unsafe. What do they know that I don't? In fact, one of the worst nights of sleep I've ever had, and I say this as a father of three children, uh, one of the worst nights of sleep I've ever had was uh, towards the end of that trip uh, in Cape Town, I was staying in one of the most secure houses I've ever been in. Uh, Karina and I were by ourselves, we were just uh, staying in a friend's house, they weren't there. Suburban Cape Town, beautiful spots. As I said, the most secure house I've been in, but it was pretty normal in South Africa. The high fences, of course. Uh, a security alarm which was set up for every single room separately, uh, and if it picked up problems, uh, there'd be armed, heavily armed guards at your house in minutes. Now, you would think that much security would sleep well. I found the opposite thing happened. Uh, that much security made me feel nervous. Like, why do we need this much security? What am I missing here? It's weird, isn't it? In, in a place like that, a safe place, we can still feel very insecure. In fact, even as I use that word, insecure, we realise that the feeling of security is not just a physical thing, is it? Especially in a place like Adelaide. The word insecurity is far more uh, often helping us think beyond sort of uh, being protected from violence and thinking about social anxieties. Security is a social thing. Insecurity, we're thinking about a loss of confidence as we interact in our world and relationships. Anxiety about how we handle ourselves in front of others. Which is to say, security is a deep psychological need that we crave, isn't it? But uh, finding security and feeling, feeling really secure in our own sort of personhood, uh, that can be so elusive. Uh, perhaps one of the worst parts about our feelings of elusive personal security is just how easily that makes us exploited. Uh, we will jump on anything, won't we, that promises extra security. Politicians, for instance, they know how insecure we are. Uh, If you can bear bear to do this in our next election cycle, just count the number of times you hear the politicians talk about security. Secure borders, 
safeguarding our jobs, a secure economy, threats, foreign, domestic, national security. It's almost as if they're trying to make us nervous, isn't it? So we know that they are the safe bet. Uh, Of course, uh, advertisers and marketers, they know that our insecurities will drive us to buy more stuff. Oh, yes, actually, I will update my phone if it has improved security features. Please, take my money. Uh, But perhaps worse than the feeling of uh, security that eludes us, worse is, uh, I think, wrongly thinking and feeling we are secure. Thinking the future is safe when we're we're not. Um, I was certain last year that uh, as a younger person, uh, if I caught COVID, I'd probably be okay, just like a bad cold. Uh, Statistics was on my side. I was pretty secure, felt I'd be okay. Until I read that there is a very high correlation between serious cases, hospitalised cases of COVID, and being a bald man, uh, I had a, had a moment. Uh, my security, my, my normally good health was shaken. So the question today, does true security, satisfying security, does it exist? If we find security, can we be sure it's true security, not some false pretense? And how do we get that? Well, it's actually what the prophet Isaiah has been banging on about for quite a few chapters as we get to chapter 32. Um, so let's just step back and get a bit of a context. I want to sort of show a snapshot of what's going on in this part of the Bible, help it all fit together. Um, security has been a big theme all through Isaiah's book so far, and for two main reasons. Um, firstly, Assyria, the superpower of the day, they're very dangerous. Uh, they are a threat to Israel's national security. But secondly, and far more importantly, and far more dangerous, is just how holy Israel's God is. Because of his great holiness and uh, his moral perfection, it's his pure, uh, lethal godness. Israel is in big trouble if they persist in their unholiness and their just atrocious attitude towards God and each other. And so the great danger that Isaiah has been warning Israel about is ignoring this holy God. And as we heard last week, uh, he's been warning them that a life built without him at the centre of our lives puts us in the worst kind of danger. Now, these two dangers, Assyria and God's, uh, God's holiness, Isaiah weaves them together as kind of the same threat, as if Assyria is basically an instrument of God's holy judgment. Now, it's going to be helpful for us to remember that uh, in Isaiah's day, Uh, the nation of Israel had been divided for about 200 years into two kingdoms. So uh, Isaiah himself was in the southern kingdom in what was normally called Judah. He's based in Jerusalem there. Uh, Then there was the northern part, the part normally called Israel. It's a bit confusing. Israel split in two and there's a place called Israel and a uh, place down south called Judah. Now I mention that uh, because of what Assyria did, uh, what they did to the northern tribes, the northern kingdom. Assyria obliterated them. Uh, just like Isaiah had warned them. They had failed to listen to God's, uh, to God's warnings, and now they are no more. Judah, where Isaiah is, there in the south, they had dodged the Assyrian bullet. Initially, uh, they'd kind of sucked up to Assyria in some clever politics, and they worked out how to, to stay safe. The problem was, Isaiah wasn't really impressed with how they did it. Nevertheless, the Assyrians leave them alone, they go home, and for a long time... Uh, 20 or so years, Judah was, was safe. They felt secure and it was, they were pretty prosperous. Assyria was happy, they were happy, everything was fine. 
But if you go back to uh, chapter 28 of Isaiah, you see from there, Isaiah starts to talk about a massive problem that emerged. You can actually read more about the politics and what's going on historically in 2 Kings. Uh, That's a great spot to kind of get more of a historical feel for what's happening. I'd say 2 Kings from about chapter 15 onwards is a great read. What we see as Isaiah kind of talks about what's going on from chapter 28, uh, well, Judah, after a while, they just decide to give Assyria the middle finger. They just don't want to be part of what Assyria are doing anymore. And they instead team up with Egypt. They want to take on, uh, with Egypt, the, the vicious might of Assyria. Perhaps not a great policy. And Isaiah, from chapter 28, he's not impressed. Uh, 28, 29, those chapters, he just tees off at the leaders for their absolute foolishness. He talks about their motivation, which just seems to be pride and a, a sort of a quest for power, and just absolute blindness to how foolish and destructive their decisions will be. Worse of all, the leaders don't look to God for help. Instead, they look to the country that once enslaved them, Egypt. Why would you go there? Isaiah is flabbergasted. And so he paints for them this picture of just absolute devastation that will come if they persist in this folly. Then you get to chapters 30 and 31, and Isaiah gives his assessment of this new foreign policy, uh, this new strategy. His assessment basically is, it's really bad, don't do it. Uh, If you have your Bible with you, uh, which just while our pew Bibles are in quarantine for the next little while, it would be good to get in the habit of bringing a Bible along uh, to church. Um, but if you have your Bible with you, just turn to chapter 31 of Isaiah. It'll be on the screen as well for those uh, who don't have a Bible with you. I just want to give you the summary of uh, Isaiah's take on what the kings of Judah had done. So this is chapter 31, verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in great strength of their horsemen. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Now, that was Isaiah's assessment, and was he right? Yeah. Yeah, he was. It turns out the Egyptian army got completely smashed by the Assyrians. That leaves Judah, who had just given Assyria the middle finger without any military support against the most lethal, ruthless superpower the world had ever seen. Bad idea, right? Uh, But what makes it such a bad idea is how how Isaiah finishes chapter 31. This is uh, from verse 5. If we want true security, God's people really should know where to look. This is verse 5, chapter 31. The Lord Almighty will shield Jerusalem. He will shield it and deliver it. He will pass over and deliver it, not Egypt. And then verse 8. Assyria will fall. By no human sword, a sword not of mortals will devour them. You see the point? Why do you need Egypt if you have God on your side? You do want God on your side, don't you? That's the argument he's making. And so as we come today to chapter 32, Isaiah gives Judah hope for real security. And I think he probably spoke these words around the time they start hearing about Egypt being defeated. He's... He's speaking to a context where everyone's had this dawning realization that Jerusalem is next in line uh, for Assyria. What security is available at this point? Well, as it turns out, there is amazing security available. And somehow, as it starts in chapter 32, it all centers around a king. Which king? Well, before we jump to the obvious uh, Sunday school answer, it's Jesus. It's true, uh, it is Jesus. The answer is always Jesus. 
Before we get there, uh, notice first that the point Isaiah is making is not so much about who the king is, but what his kingdom is like. Doesn't it sound just a bit too good to be true? Have a look at with some of the things Isaiah tells us. This king will be such a good leader that righteousness and justice will just be normal. Can you imagine a news cycle with no political scandals whatsoever? Imagine that. Look at verse 2. The way they lead is to shelter others. They're not looking out for their own self-interests. They themselves are the refuge in the storm. You think for a moment what Isaiah is saying here. Think about a shelter. Uh, Some of you have been camping uh, in a tent during a storm. Think about what the tent, the shelter does. That absorbs the, the brunt of the weather so that those inside don't have to. Isaiah is saying, that's what this king will be like. They will take the brunt of danger so that others don't have to. What a great leader. What great security that is. That's not all. Verse 3, uh, the people can now see and hear. Because of the king's leadership, something changes in the people. Now, in Isaiah, throughout the book, as he talks about seeing and hearing, he's not talking about our literal senses. He's talking about being able to see and hear the work and the words of God. Uh, That is, as opposed to being spiritually blind. He's describing here people who have hearts that are open to loving God, people who are really listening to Him and obeying Him. Again, just for a moment, imagine living in a world where everyone was doing that, all the time. Then just as we look again at verses 5 and 8, think what a great promise this is. Under this king, fools won't get to run the show. Uh, Wouldn't that make a nice change to the way our world works? In Isaiah's day, in our day, we can all see a mile away uh, the way that powerful people are self-interested. And there's a thin veneer behind it. We know so many are scoundrels, so many are wicked. We usually can't do anything about it. They're the powerful ones. And quite often, it's because they're wicked that they are powerful. It's a bit deeper than that, though. The word fool that gets used here a few times, uh, in the Bible, that word has built into it the idea that true foolishness is actually godless. That is, fools are those who live without reference to God and are bent towards evil. Not just silly people. Uh, But in this kingdom, the one Isaiah is describing, there will be no more place for them, ruining the lives of those around them. Again, it sounds too good to be true to live in a world like that, doesn't it? Isn't it just relaxing to imagine that, though? Just to spend a few moments in that kind of kingdom, just imagining what it would be like. I find that just a great relief. What we'll see uh, next week is, I think, one of the most astounding moments in world history. Uh, the Assyrian army, they do get to Jerusalem. They are ready to ram it and just destroy it. Uh, the king of the time, King Hezekiah, He actually does the right thing. He trusts in God for deliverance. He turns to God in repentance. Something amazing happens. I'll 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 leave it till next week. There's a bit of a leave of intention for the entire week. You can read ahead if you really want to. What I'm saying though is King Hezekiah is a good king. Perhaps in some sense he is the king that Isaiah is talking about here. He was a good king. But Hezekiah's kingdom never looked anything like this. This is not the king that Isaiah is describing. In fact, Isaiah tells us in the next chapter, if you turn to uh, chapter 33, he tells us exactly who this king is. And this will be on the screen, verse 22. The Lord, he is our king. It is he who will save us. 
When you put that all together, I reckon this part of Isaiah does explain so much to us about Jesus, the descendant of Hezekiah. Jesus is clearly the awaited king. As God the Son, he's God, he's the Lord, he is the king, the perfect king. Just spend a moment just thinking a bit about Jesus. Like, what was he first known for? Actually, even today, what is he primarily known for? I would argue the main thing Jesus has always been known for is as a teacher, a preacher, a rabbi. What did Jesus preach about? If you could sum it up in a word, what was Jesus' main thing? I would say it's the kingdom. If you're reading through the Gospels, see how Jesus preaches about the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. The parables are about the kingdom. It's this kingdom. The one that Isaiah is talking about, that's what Jesus was announcing. He said, I'm here, I'm the king, and so this kingdom is here. Today, the thing to point out is that, among other things, what the kingdom of God, the the kingdom of Jesus looks like is a place of security, of safety. In the first place, uh, Jesus is the king who is that shelter, the refuge in the storm. Jesus, on the cross, he takes our place. He absorbs the punishment for our sins so we don't have to. As Jesus describes himself, he is the good shepherd, the good leader, who lays his life down for his sheep. Which tells us he gives us ultimate security, eternal safety from the holiness of God. What's more, Jesus invites us into this kingdom now. Now. Uh, to live under his great rule. The challenge, I suppose, is that we only experience that rule in part. We don't feel the perfection of that kingdom yet, do we? Uh, That is, we know it doesn't always feel like Isaiah describes here, but sometimes, in part, it does as we follow Jesus. I really think Christians do get a a taste of this security in Jesus uh, that we will have in full one day. And until that day... Christians pray that this kingdom might come. We keep praying that because if we don't keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and his kingdom as our true source of security, what happens? For those of us who are so easily exploited, all of us, we're easily tempted to think we should trust other things for our security instead. Perhaps worse still, we might think we are actually secure because of those things, things that make us feel secure even though we're not. And that is what Isaiah turns to in the next section, verses 9 to 14, feeling secure for all the wrong reasons. Uh, let me read it again from verse 9, and this will be on your handouts. This is from verse 9. You women who are so complacent, rise up and listen to me. You daughters who feel secure, hear what I have to say. In little more than a year, you who feel secure will tremble, the grape harvest will fail, and the harvest of fruit will not come. Tremble, you complacent women. Shudder, you daughters who feel secure. Now, just to say, I don't really know why Isaiah is singling out the women here. Um, to be fair, he has been blasting the guys for about 31 chapters so far. So perhaps in the names of you know, gender equality, he's sort of shifting the focus slightly. I don't know. Uh, perhaps there's a particular group of women in mind he sees taking life a bit too easy in Jerusalem. Uh, that's possible. I suspect uh, the bigger picture here is if the women are feeling complacent, those, that is, those who in that culture were the most vulnerable, if they're feeling secure, well, how much more so the rest of the culture? How much so the men? I think this is a great example 
of our actual security and how secure we feel not matching up. They have a false sense of security, don't they? Now, why is that? And what's about to happen? Isaiah actually doesn't spell it out here. Uh, It does say the harvest will fail, and perhaps the idea is they're thinking the harvest is good, uh, we have plenty of good food, good clothes, that must mean God's happy with us, right? Right? Uh, Wrong, says Isaiah. Your prosperity doesn't prove God's favour. Well, perhaps it's a bit more general, they're just confident. Jerusalem was famous for its great security, its great defences. Or maybe they're thinking, oh, Egypt's got our back, we'll be fine. Whatever it is, they're trusting, Isaiah says, is warning them desperately. The things they have put their trust in, they're all going to get smashed. Their beautiful homes and gardens will turn to a wasteland. Seems like the party now, but that security, that sense of things going okay, it's coming to an end. So it seems this would be the obvious point to ask ourselves, what have we built our sense of self-security on? What is it that makes us feel comfortable about our future? Perhaps things like good general health, a steady financial position, a great career, uh, the support of loving family and friends. All great things, right? Good things. Uh, we hope all those things last for a long time, and they might, and that'll be great. But they might not. And that'll be very, very hard. Or worse still, if we have built our whole security on those things, if they go, that's not just hard, that's devastating. And ultimately, we do know Every single one of those things will pass away and we will stand before a very holy God. And on that day, things like our financial position will offer us no security. Only the security we find in Jesus if we turn to Him as our King. That is to say, there is a better way, a far better place to find our confidence And so as we get to verse 15, Isaiah does take a real turn, doesn't he? After outlining the decay and decline of Jerusalem in verse 14, he he jumps to a far more hopeful scene where God himself breaks in. He's pouring out his spirit. He's bringing life and vitality and justice and righteousness, the hallmarks of the kingdom we saw right at the start of this chapter. Isaiah seems to be saying there will be a time when God steps into history, changing everything, a climactic moment, if you will where His Spirit unleashes uh, final justice and righteousness in His people. And it's all through His King. Let me read again from verse 17 what the Spirit of God brings about uh, through His Spirit-anointed King. And just as I'm reading, just try and picture yourself in this scene. Verse 17, The fruit of that righteousness will be peace. Its effect will be quietness and confidence forever. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. Doesn't that sound good? Peace? Not sort of anxious and worried about what if? I imagine this sounds very good if Assyria is about to uh, beat down the door. But it's just as good for us, isn't it? That is, we are statistically very, very secure in a place like Adelaide, But how we feel and our reality doesn't always match up. 
Uh, this promise from God through Isaiah is of perfect, steadfast and felt security. It does finally match up. We feel at home and secure, having genuine peace and rest and confidence forever. What a great thing. Which is to say, we can't find this sort of security in our world. And we'll just be vulnerable and easily exploited if we think we can. In fact, if we think we can, we will get our priorities out of whack with Jesus' priorities if we chase after security in this world. This kind of spiritual and steadfast security is completely a work of God as He pours out His Spirit. I find these verses a great antidote to a world that encourages and insecurities. I'll try that sentence again. I find this, uh, this passage a great antidote to our world that encourages our insecurities. Belonging to this kingdom, the kingdom of God, is something that we can't have taken away. It's something we really can build our whole lives on as we look first to Jesus as a place of security. Now, we love here uh, having with us every week people who are uh, looking into the claims of the Bible and of Jesus uh, perhaps for the first time, perhaps for the first time in a long time. And if that's you today, welcome. Uh, especially big welcome if you wouldn't count yourself as a follower of Jesus. It's great you're here today. Um, I hope you see in this passage uh, why Christians like Jesus so much. But first hear me say, uh, it's not, not like Christians have an unshakable sense of security all the time, perfectly. That's not what I'm saying today. Uh, we, do, we do struggle with insecurity, of course. But what I am saying is that there are sometimes great moments of clarity about the security we have in Jesus. I think this is true for all Christians. It just might be a small moment very occasionally, but it's great. And if Jesus, after all, is a king we can follow with our lives, if he offers this kind of security, I know that doesn't prove he's a great king, and it's all true, but I hope for you it's at least worth exploring a little further about how we can be sure about this sort of security. And if you're interested in exploring further, we'd love to help you. Please just let us know. We've got, uh, we've got some ideas about how we might help you uh, find out more about Jesus. For all of us today, I think the question Isaiah is really asking of everyone, be it 700 BC or today in Colonel Light Gardens, the question is, who is your king? Who is your king? Who do you really trust for your security? Um, it's tempting, of course, for me to give the easy answer to that one. Of course, Jesus is my king, I'm a Christian, I just find my security in him. Um, that's the easy answer, but just to take kind of a, a sober moment and think through, what would devastate us the most if we lost it? What would devastate us the most if we lost it? Isaiah is saying the answer to that should be, what should devastate us the most is losing our place in the kingdom. If we don't find ourselves answering, that is the thing that devastates us the most, if we lose it. I'd suggest that perhaps our security and our confidence is in the wrong place. It's misplaced. To put it another way, uh, to put it as Jesus does, actually, uh, everyone who listens to and obeys Jesus as king is like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. Storms come and they wash away everything else, health and wealth and popularity, you name it, we'll probably lose it. But if our lives are built on Jesus, we are secure. We are grounded. We stand. The alternative, as Jesus puts it, is like building a house on sand. Nothing else will stand the storms that are coming.
course, everything else in the world encourages me to take uh, responsibility for my own sense of security, to build on sand, to trust myself, as it were, for my security. Be it my own physical security, that is, voting for the right people and buying the right things, or really take charge of my own psychological security, try and find inner security and self-confidence. I think as we chase after those things, we are easily exploited. And unfortunately, a lot of the time, I do end up going in those directions first for my own security. But I really do hope you have those moments as well, especially when you're praying, especially when you're praying, when you suddenly realise in God's kindness that that has been the case. You realise suddenly you have been trusting in something else other than Jesus, perhaps yourself, You've been really worried and anxious and it feels like all the security of your future is on you and suddenly in God's kindness we get that clarity. We turn to Jesus as our security and we feel yeah, secure because regardless of whatever it is we're worried about, regardless of how that works out, we know God's in control and He's good. Everything could go terribly, Assyria could beat down the door, the storms will come. Still, we have that taste of knowing and feeling that great security, knowing that it really is okay. Because as we heard last week, we are invited to that great feast with good wine and amazing meats. I know, I get to dwell forever in peaceful dwelling places, secure homes, undisturbed places of rest. I can even let my donkeys go free range. It's encouraging, isn't it? Especially as we pray have those moments, those, those glimpses of quietness that can be ours in Christ Jesus. After all, prayer is how we express where our security truly lies. So keep praying. Why don't we do that now? Let's pray. From Isaiah 35, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come, He'll come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He'll come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and a mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And those the Lord rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. And so, King Jesus, we pray, let your kingdom come. Amen.